Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hey everyone, Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth here at Petrero Medical with another great episode of Hills and Valleys. This time we cover a very interesting topic, especially for physicians who are just finishing their fellowship or residency and they're about to enter the workforce, but they're stuck with a really difficult question that they have to answer. The question is, which path do you choose? See, a lot of physicians love the opportunity to teach, not necessarily the research, but to teach, and so that makes them go into academia. While at the same time, more and more physicians have this interest to pursue entrepreneurial interests by going into private practice. And for the longest time, it seemed like you had to choose one or the other. But believe it or not, there's a third path where you can do both. That's right, both. And today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Joel Toff, the famous kidney boy from Neff Twitter, joins us. Now, for those of you who don't know Dr. Toff, and I'm guessing if you're outside of nephrology, you may have heard of him, but in nephrology, everyone does know who he is. Uh, Dr. Toff uh, went to medical school at Wayne State University, and then he did his med-peds uh, residency at Indiana University. He then completed an adult fellowship in nephrology at the University of Chicago, and currently he serves as a clinical nephrologist in Detroit at Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine, while at the same time also being in private practice. Now, Joel's uh, passion is using social media and new media to teach nephrology. Uh, He started his blog, PB Fluids, back in 2008, which is now called the Salt Whisperer, and we're leaving a link for that in the show notes. And he developed the famous Neff Madness bracket where uh, nephrologists pick various topics in nephrology in a March Madness style bracket and actually score it and rank it just like in March Madness. And also the Neff JC, which is a journal club on Twitter where nephrologists twice a month get together to talk about journal topics. And he does this to help leverage the power of the community and also digital scholarship and creativity to teach nephrology to everyone. Uh, He's the founder and program director of the Nephrology Social Media Collective Internship, which actually trains medical professionals to use social media for medical education. And he was recognized by the American Society of Nephrology with the Robert Nairns Award for Innovations in Teaching in 2017. And in this episode, he's going to go into great detail and provide some really fantastic pearls on people who are graduating from residency and fellowship as to how to sort of pursue this this career where you can do both academia and private practice along with the type of contracts you fill out, how do you look for good partners, and how do you find these programs where they offer that kind of opportunity. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Hills and Valleys. Hey everybody, Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth here at Petro Medical with another great episode of Hills and Valleys. We finally get a hold of the well-known, the famous, the great and powerful Dr. Joel Toff. You may know him as Kidney Boy uh, from the Twitterverse. Uh, when I first joined Petro, I got introduced to the Neff Twitter community, um, which in part was uh, started by uh, Dr. Toff and some of his close friends. And Dr. Toff, why don't you tell us about some of those other people who helped you start this amazing community online? Right. So 
probably one of the core people that's not, unfortunately, not with us anymore. Uh, he tragically passed was a guy named Nate Hellman, who was one of the very first and probably most talented nephrology bloggers and uh, at a young age died of a of an infection and just a huge loss to the community. But he was uh, one of the people that set the whole process in motion. He was the inspiration behind uh, Matt Sparks, who is a huge leader in this field now. Uh, he was a friend of Nate's and uh, picked up from where Nate was left off. Uh, Kinar Javari uh, at, in uh, Long Island is an amazing, another foundational member of this group, one of the original bloggers, really, really productive uh, uh, member of the team that really got this rolling was the original person at uh, AJKD blog, uh, one of the original, uh, really the first collective blog for nephrologists where you have multiple bloggers working together to put something together that's really pro- really positive. And then uh, uh, Swapnil Hiremath, another uh, foundational member, person who started uh, NEFJC, the Nephrology Journal Club, and a uh, uh, real great contributor. Fantastic. Now, you know, uh, I remember when I was a med student that, uh, you know, Twitter was definitely around, but not uh, a medical community like this. And you have different ones on Twitter, but I got to tell you, the the Neff the Twitter community is unbelievable. I never thought, well, for one, it's unbelievable, unbelievably valuable and hilarious, too. You guys have some amazing uh, profile names and Twitter handles. What, you know, what do you think got you know all these nephrologists to say, hey, we're going to take to Twitter and, and educate each other uh, on a daily and weekly basis? You know, I think uh, one of the things about nephrology is uh, a lot of fe- a lot of specialties can kind of hole up and they don't touch other parts of medicine. But since nephrology is the field that uh, has expertise in interpreting electrolytes, and every every field of medicine gets electrolytes, and uh, and so our patients and our expertise touches all other aspects of medicine, whether you're talking about critical care or surgery or uh, just. Uh, patients in the emergency department. And so that that expertise, I think, spills up, spills across. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, nephrologists are, are in demand to provide uh, teaching expertise in those areas, even if the people that they're talking to are not in uh, nephrology. And I think that ends up being a super important aspect when you're first getting started in these, um, in these kind of social media networks, is that one of the most important aspects of these networks is size, right? If you you need a certain threshold of people that are interested in what you're talking about, and the fact that we were talking about things that were interesting outside of the four walls that define nephrology, right? That we could talk to surgeons and internists and critical care doctors and ER doctors about the things that we were interested in, and it was a great way to uh, uh, jumpstart our community, yeah, and you know, I've definitely noticed that myself. Um, you know, being in industry, you know, I was a little shy at first to to engage. So I was like, you know, I don't want to impose on the on the group. But you know, someone encouraged me. I, I think it was uh, Dr. Michael Hung, who's uh, at U Michigan, keeping 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 it renal. Yeah, and he's like, yeah, he's like, if you have questions, just you know, put it in the group. You know, ask people. And I was like, okay. So there was a paper that came out, and I had questions about it. I, I threw it up, and uh, Swap No Higher Math actually responded really quickly, and you know. Uh, added added to my knowledge base, which is fantastic. So it's one of my favorite uh, communities. I personally wish 
not only more areas in medicine had it, but even my in my industry for uh, marketers who are in uh, medical devices, I wish we had something like that because it's it's such a positive community. And you guys meet. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about uh, Nef JC or the, the the Journal Club on Twitter. Yeah, so the the Journal Club I think started in uh, 2014. And uh, the idea was, uh, and this has been experimented on, there have been a, a few people that had pioneered nephrology journal clubs uh, before us. We were by, by no means the first. Uh, but the idea is we can use Twitter as a platform to have a community meet and talk about uh, a journal article. And uh, so when we started NFJC, the idea was that twice a month we'll throw up an article and we'll put a summary on the web. So if you haven't read the article, uh, you can get a you can spend ten minutes and kind of get a sense of what the article is about before the discussion, and then we will uh, meet at a very specific time when we do that. We do an hour long discussion on uh, two Tuesdays a month, and we'll have this. Dis- we'll talk about the article. We'll just kind of start with kind of background, go through methods, go through the results, and go through the implications of the study. And when we first started, we would get you know a dozen people or twenty people talking about the article, and now we're regularly getting uh, sixty to eighty people meeting to talk about the article. And since we do it live, right, it runs from nine p.m. to ten p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, there's other parts of the world that it doesn't that time doesn't work. So we now also run a um, uh, a discussion in, uh, in for London European time and one in India for uh, uh, Indian Standard Time. And so those are, uh, you know, same topic, but at a different time that's more convenient for people in those time zones. And it's, uh, and if you caught all three of these groups together, we're getting over 200, almost 400 people uh, participating in some of these chats. It's really been a real positive experience. And about a third of the time, maybe even half the time now, we're getting authors to participate which is really kind of a special way to enhance your journal club to actually be able to, you know, there's a, there ends up being, there's a million decisions that are made when you uh, design a big clinical trial. And uh, maybe a tenth of them get discussed in the methods. And usually a lot of them don't seem to matter, but always someone will have a question about that. You know, why'd you do this? Why didn't you do this? And a lot of times these are limitations that are not apparent if you're not designing the trial. And uh, getting that insight, well, we had trouble with the IRB. Well, we had a lot of trouble with the, uh, uh, certain countries weren't able to do this or that. And you're like, oh, I hadn't thought about those things, right? You know, the, the complications of putting these, uh, executing these clinical trials uh, is oftentimes hidden in the kind of the sterile uh, publication of the New England Journal of Medicine. And being able to talk to the authors and bring up these specific questions has been illuminating. You know, the, again, none of this stuff is nearly as easy as it looks. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I I can only imagine that over time, you know, you discuss things that are not so obvious, right? They're definitely not written about in a book. But how many young researchers did you accelerate their uh, path to success by just doing this and someone saying, oh, I didn't know about that, right? Think, you know, some basic things that, and I think this is the thing about medicine, why it's such an exciting time. Medicine historically has been an apprenticeship, right? You spend hours and hours by the side of your mentor and you learn almost by osmosis and magic. But now with things like this, you get to learn from multiple men- mentors, the best in the world, you know? So I-, I wonder how much of an impact this will have 10, 20 years from now. Well, and I think uh, trying to find mentors is one of the most difficult things in medicine, right? You know, you get assigned a a faculty advisor. But with this kind of Twitter community, here's the opportunity to find 
uh, mentors that you really can connect with and communicate with and are interested in the things that you're interested in, in ways that you can't, that you may not have access to at your local institution. Absolutely. Now, now your footprint is the whole world. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, so medicine has a great uh, history of mentorship, but what if you get assigned to somebody who you're not really crazy about as a mentor or is not a very good one? You're stuck with them, right? Yeah, it's worse. It's a lot worse than dating, right? You know, <laughs> if you're on a blind date, you don't have to go back with them the second time. But you know, if if that's your assigned mentor, your faculty advisor, you know, for three years in your residency, that's the person. And you're right that oftentimes those relationships don't work out, and it should be surprising that they don't, right? Of course, that you know, it's difficult. Yeah. Well, so let me let me hop into something real quick then. Why nephrology? Who who before doc, there is Doctor Toff? Who was Joel Toff? And, and what got you into medicine? What got you into nephrology? So, um, so medicine has these heavy, has these gravity wells, right? I mean, you were there. You you understand how this happens. Is that once if you find something moderately interesting, well, you'll read more about it, and the more you learn about a topic, the more interesting it becomes, and then you read more about it, right? And then it becomes even more interesting. And eventually you, you're like, well, that's what I'm going to study, of course, because it's the only thing I find interesting, right? And so uh, you need to be careful what you get interested in early on in medicine because you may get sucked into one of these gravity wells and you, you can't escape. And next thing you know, you're going to become a nephrologist, right? And this, <laughs> this happened to me largely, largely by accident. I had no intention to become a nephrologist, um, but I started a project after medical school uh, to kind of uh, write a book about fluids and electrolytes, and uh, this is a totally hubristic idea. Like you know, the you know the idea that a person who hasn't even done residency is going to be able to write a book on fluids and electrolytes. Like I just had no idea what I was getting into, but uh, but the process of writing that book, I developed a content expertise on fluids and electrolytes that were was way beyond my level of learning. Right, like I didn't I didn't realize it then, but as a as an intern in MedPeds, I had better fluid and electrolyte knowledge than a lot of my attendings, right? Like I didn't, I didn't recognize that I had that knowledge. It's only now that I'm graduated and I look back and I kind of know how much attendings know. I was like, oh yeah, I was definitely ahead of most of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of a weird place to be. Uh, but it became, and then, you know, and, and nephrology was a natural step after that. Interesting. Interesting. What, so, you know, one thing that, you're told early on in medicine is you you gravitate and you pick the things not only that you're interested in but where your personality fits right so what about nephrology who are some of those uh mentors you had early on that kind of influenced you into it so i you know uh, i had a had a great uh there was a pediatric nephrologist at Wayne State when I was a fourth year medical student Dr. Daba who was an absolutely brilliant clinician and what I loved about how she taught was everything kind of came from first principles. She was always talking about, you know, these channels and this channels, and this is how it works. And it wasn't memorize this. It wasn't brute force how this works. It was let's understand how this happens, and then you won't have to learn it again. You'll just understand it. It'll just become knowledge. And she did just a beautiful job of laying out the physiology of uh, renal physiology so that Everything made sense. It was it was just it was one of those great rotations with a great teacher. Um, you know, every 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 uh, every round started at the whiteboard as we would go through each patient and talk about the physiology, what was going on, what was causing these patients to have problems. Uh, 
just a, a, a brilliant clinician and really and an inspirational one. But probably, probably the most important mentor was a book. There's a book called uh, uh, by Burton Rose, uh, Physiology of uh, Electrolyte and Acid Base Disorders, and it's a it's one of these one author textbooks. And uh, there's a few of them in medicine, right? You get most most of the textbooks that we see are multi-author, and I think that multi-author process removes a lot of the soul of any textbook. But these single author books, these are uh, passion projects, and. Uh, and you can just feel the passion of the author when you when you read them. And Burton Rose is one of the great ones. Uh, Marino and his ICU book is another one. But uh, I reading Burton Rose as I was writing the Fluid Electrolyte book just it just it just captured my imagination. I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. This is who I want to be like. I want to be able to teach as well as he. Interesting. You know that that's something I never uh, realized. But you're absolutely right that. Some of these these multi-author uh, books like Harrison's or Gold, or, uh, or Robin's Pathology, they're, they're great books, but they, you know, I guess the more authors you have, the more of the soul is removed. And and actually thinking back now, some of the best books that I I loved outside of those multi-author ones, like uh, there's one uh, Golion Pathology, it's just an amazing, amazing book. Um, and that's you know that might be an interesting uh, way to sort of encourage students and, and residents who are really passionate about something to, to put a book to it. I think a lot of people, do you think a lot of people decide not to write a book because they say, I'm, I'm not, you know, there's Harrison's, there's Golion, there's, there's Robbins, I'm not, why would I write a book? Do you think that's the reason why? I don't know. It, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like we are kind of in a post book culture. Like nobody has the attention span to read a book anymore. Right. <laughs> like it's just, I, I kind of feel like that, like it's still, it's still kind of a, it's still an amazing thing when you have written a book, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel kind of like the career topper that it used to be. I don't know. That's my, my sense. It does feel like we've kind of like culture's moved on, you know, be a YouTuber. Come on, get ahead, yeah, of, the, no, get ahead, get ahead right? of the curve now, right? See, yeah, seriously. Be yeah, a podcaster, I guess, right? There's, yeah. I mean, no, no, but really, the, the media that's capturing people's imagination has moved, right? And, and yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that there's not a role for books. I don't want to say that. And clearly, they were hugely instrumental in my education. But uh, it's today, the things that are really moving the culture, the things that are moving the needle are not textbooks. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. In a, in a funny way, um, you know, it's almost like we're in a second Gutenberg revolution with, uh, with audio. So for the first time in history, the spoken word travels farther and larger than the written word. Never before that happened. And now with people listening to podcasts, you've now allow people to add one or two day, uh, two hours a day where they get to learn, let's say when they're doing chores or driving. So what, is, what kind of effect is that going to have? I mean, not just on the word, let's just take medicine, right? How, how are people going to improve themselves as clinicians? You know, it's, I, I think it's a very exciting time, and, and I think more physicians should you know, take the time to, to maybe record an, an, a podcast and throw it up somewhere. Yeah, I, I think there's nothing that's been more instrumental to my career, the trajectory of my career, than the way that technology has sequentially broken down traditional barriers, right? So I write my first book when I'm a second-year medical student or third-year medical student between my second and third-year medical school. 
And uh, we wrote it on Microsoft Word on uh, uh, Macintosh PowerBooks. Uh, and we just, just photocopied it, used photocopiers to to print them up and bound it up at Kinko's and then, uh, and then shipped them to medical schools around the country, right? Like this is a, this use of the desktop publishing revolution totally allowed us to bypass, uh, the publishing hierarchy, right? That's why a medical student could write a book, right? No publishing company was going to hire a med student to write. And, uh, and, the, and the success of that book is what led to the fluid and electrolyte, the idea that, well, let, let's write a fluid and electrolyte book. That first book was a microbiology book that I wrote with a woman named Sarah Fobble. And then we teamed up again for the fluid and electrolyte book. Microbook. Microbook took us uh, six weeks to write. And, uh, and so we figured, ah, fluid and electrolytes can be more complex. We'll give it a year. That should be plenty of time, right? Ten times as, many, as much time for fluid and electrolytes as we did for... Uh, for uh, microbiology, it took five years. <laughs> we had no idea what we were walking into. Actually, a little close, a little less than about four years. So we started it in 1995 and published it right before uh, the year 2000. Copyrighted 1999. Wow. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, you know, part of the problem was we were residents, and there's not a lot of uh, discretionary textbook writing time in residency. <laughs> right, right. You're 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 wor- being worked like dogs, pretty much. So. And then we would come home and like, oh, good book writing, <laughs> delightful. Like, do I do I sleep or do I write? Yeah, right. I mean, I'm I am solidly in the uh, the duty hour limitation era, right? I was not. We, we I didn't have call more than every fourth night, and uh, I got one golden weekend a month, and you know it it wasn't the bad old days that my uh, that my attendings talked about. You know, every third every third night call or every other night call or. You know, uh, but it wasn't easy. I mean, it was still was residency, and it was still tiring. Wow. Well, in the spirit of talking about these things that are truly paradigm shifting, you're a very humble guy. I know you're gonna you're gonna disagree with me on this, but aside, from, you know, the goal on on this on this interview with you was at first was to talk about something around nephrology, but you you illuminated a topic that just captivated my attention, and I think that the Physicians who are going to listen to this talk, they're going to have their lives changed by this uh, topic that you're going to introduce, which is you mentioned it as, I think, the third path for physicians, which is every physician, even my friends who are finishing residency, they have to decide, do I want to go academia or do I want to go into private practice? And then they have to pick. But you you illuminated this third path and you, you're somebody who's really embodied and exemplified that. And I want you to tell me a little bit about that and the steps that got you into this third path. Like, let's start with the, with the basic. What is this third path? Right. So I, my career, and you can point to other people in medicine in various fields that have been able to kind of walk the line between pure private practice and pure academics. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm in a, a group called uh, St. Clair Specialty, and it's a, uh, it's a, a single specialty uh, uh, private practice, and we are hired by the hospital to run their fellowship program. And so, you know, we have uh, 17 nephrologists in our group, and about five of us are part of the core academic team. And we uh, train uh, nephrology fellows. We have uh, currently we have five nephrology fellows, um, and we kind of alternate between five and six nephrology fellows. Sometimes we get up to seven, depending on. Uh, 
depending on the numbers from year to year and whether we have a transplant fellow. And, uh, and in addition to uh, training the transplant, the nephrologists, the nephrology fellows, we also are a core part of the uh, academic staff that train the residents. And we have plenty of medical students that rotate through our community hospital. And we take a, a, a lot of that weight of training them also. And so I found a private practice job where there were a lot of teaching responsibilities. And I remember when I was looking for a private practice job, when I, and let me rephrase that, when I was looking for a job, full stop, not necessarily a private practice job, but when I found this, I was like, you know, that actually, that actually appeals to me. Uh, I didn't really have a, a taste for doing research. And I have seen uh, what happens to people in academic roles when they don't have a, a solid research foundation, right? They can work at these uh, 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 academic institutions, but if they're not doing research, if they're not building their CV with funding, they get, they become just kind of, uh, they get ground, ground around, ground down, right? All they're doing is seeing patients and it feels kind of thankless. Like they're never going to be the people that are really appreciated in the department. They're never going to be the stars of the department. Clearly, uh, you know how to advance in academic medicine, and it's not by taking care of patients. And that, it didn't feel like that I wanted any part of that, right? I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to take care of patients, and I knew I wanted to do teaching. And so uh, this model was what I wanted. And it's interesting, like, it, you can see... Uh, you can see the values of the practice. Like a practice that does this is not a practice that's trying to squeeze every last nickel out of the private practice, right? They definitely have different values, and they have and they want to be they want to be builders, right? When St. Clair especially started at the primary hospital that we're at, which is called the St. John Ascension, uh, there was no nephrology fellowship, there was no kidney transplant. Uh, and there was very scant inpatient dialysis. And all of these services were built from this group, right? That's one, and, of, the, one of their missions. And you started this group, um, I no, guess, I did not start this group. found it. No, no, no. You did not. This group, this group was well-established and had already uh, built this kind of road. And I was, but, I was a, but when I interviewed there, I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I want. What, city, I, what city are, they, are you guys based Detroit. In? Yeah, we're in, in Detroit. Detroit. Okay, and so is this is this something that's common? Can you find this for in like an orthopedic surgery and in, in, in uh, gastroenterology? Are, are there parts of medicine they have things like this? Right, like so. I, I mean, if you go to a community hospital that has a fellowship program, right? Who's training those fellows? Right, those are going to be private practice people. They're probably not from the local university that are doing those training. And so, how do they? How do those groups that do the training? fit that in right and that and and i and my guess is it's a lot a lot of groups that look like ours is that it's a it's a group of private practice doctors that are really interested in training that are really interested in education right because because if you're not it's much easier not to do this right if this is not something that you need so that you can get up in the morning and go to work then you're going to drop it right because Right? It's easier to see patients on your own. It's easier not to fill out evaluations. The amount of paperwork that it takes to be a program director of a fellowship program, like it used to be you know, 20 years ago, being a program director was a sign of paper and then you're done. Now it has a tremendous amount of responsibility, lots of work. And uh, 
you need to be really dedicated to this in order to keep it up. And so what, what programs do you guys work with? So you're, you know, it's not like you're out in the middle of nowhere. You're in a big city. You're in Detroit. Yeah. And you would think yeah, that right. all the hospitals have their own fellowship programs and everything. So you go out to... Um, no, I, want to be very, I want to be very clear. This hospital has a fellowship program. They have a... And, but, you know, what, the hospital needs people to train that fellowship program. And they don't... And, and I think this is pretty common. They don't have uh, nephrologists that work for the hospital. They, they have contracted with our group to provide the services of training and running the fellowship program. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. I, guess the, I guess the alternative model, would they would, they would then hire the nephrologist and they would work directly for the hospital. But I think even that situation is very similar to where I'm at, right? Because you're not in a traditional academic center, even though I have an academic appointment. Right? I have an academic appointment at uh, William Beaumont or Oakland University, William Beaumont School of Medicine, one of the newer medical schools. I think they're 10 years old now, eight years old. Um, and, uh, but even in that city, any, any of these community hospitals, they're going to have a, uh, people running their fellowship program that are not in a traditional academic. Mm. And it makes sense, I guess, if you're especially, if you're not like a large you know, academic center like like uh, like Wayne State, for example. You're in a smaller place where you have a fellowship program, but it's it's a business like anything else. So if you're going to hire faculty, they're going to be there full time. You have to pay benefits. You have to do all these things. Versus for the hospital, they get more bang for buck doing doing it this way. Plus, you have more more people helping because you can't have just a department of three or four people teaching all these residents, right? That that's exactly right. Like the the way the contract works, it's it's. I think there's two or three full time equivalents that they have to teach the fellows. But there's a lot. There's five or five of us that are regularly doing it. We're bringing in other people, you know, to pinch it in different areas, hypertension, etc. No, that's exactly right. But but I think the important thing was that I ended up at a pro, at a, a a practice that recognizes the importance of education. And they gave me uh, a long leash to be able to pursue these other interests, right? And the things that the the practice that I've developed and the and the the career that I've been able to uh, produce, uh, I really have a lot to thank from the, my partners that saw what I was doing had some head value, and were and allowed me allowed me the free range to pursue this. And so today, and of course, it's it's uh, with the wonders of the internet and things like LinkedIn and it makes it a lot easier. What are these types of groups categorized as? How do you find them? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I think the way you would find them is that you would look for community hospitals that have fellowship programs. And then I would, in your, in your field, right, and then find out how those fellowship programs are run, what those groups are like, and I bet you will find a number of examples like this. Right? And again, you need to be a person that's looking for this. And you're gonna and are you gonna give up some income? Yeah, I'm sure, right? Like the, when you don't care about every nickel, you know what? You don't make as many nickels, right? <laughs> and, and so uh, you know, there there it's not that this is costless, but I think it's a I think it's a good trade, and it has result, it resulted in a real rich career for myself. And how's your how's the lifestyle uh, uh, in terms of you know do you you know do you 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 obviously make make the money that you want to be making. Otherwise, you would leave. But lifestyle wise, can, does this afford the type of lifestyle that you were hoping to have as a nephrologist? 
Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cut from the cloth of that. I, I didn't want a job. I wanted a career and that I, that, uh, I came at this with, hey, I'm going to dedicate a lot of my time to this, that this is what I want to fill my life with, that I do have this love for this field in a way that's not just, uh, uh, I have a strict uh, hours that I'm going to spend at work and then that I'm not going to be thinking about it. Like uh, most of my time I'm thinking about my work or some of the other projects that I'm running, just the kind of way that I'm built. And I'm, and this is something that gives me makes me fulfilled and I'm happy. Interesting. Yeah, and it seems like it'd be a fantastic path um, you know, I know, I mean, internists and are, are, are just, just the same way, but I know that, or at least I've interacted with plenty of surgeons who, who really love the idea of teaching and, and, and coaching people on techniques and stuff. But, you know, like you'll find these private practice surgeons that you can tell they're just itching to teach people. I mean, you can be a tech and you come into the room or a device rep and you just say, hey, can you show me how to do this technique? And they get so lit up and so excited. And I remember I asked a, a surgeon many years ago, because um, he's such a good at, uh, good at teaching. And I said, well, how come you don't uh, teach at the academic hospital? He's like, well, I have to be full-time there, and I don't want to do that. They don't let me do my own thing, so I just don't. And I remember thinking, I'm like, man, that's that's terrible. Like, you know, that you, that you have to pick literally between, like, being able to teach and not being able to teach. That's pretty much it, you know? Yeah, no, that, that, right, that, and, that's, and that's a shame, right? Somebody who really is inspired to teach and is really good and gifted at that, right? The, the fact that he's not able to provide that gift is, is really just a, a, that's a loss. That's really disappointing. And so your first step to, you know, if you were to give new residents, new fellows who are just graduating is look for these community hospitals with fellowship programs, maybe reach out to the program and say who, what would be the question that that you would have them ask or, or they well, would I, ask? I, I, I would ask, you know, who 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 staffs it? Who staffs and, te- and trains your nephrology fellows? And then talk and then talk to the program director. How does that work? Who, who's who's part of the, your teaching faculty? Are they all part of one group or is it a rotating process? How do I get involved in that? Right. This is, what I, lo- you know, this is what I'm looking for, you know. And then and let's just so and let's just walk like kind of role play this through so. I'm a new resident. I just or fellow. I just graduated. I find a community hospital. I reach out and I say, you know, who staffs the program? Who runs it? And they say, oh, it's Dr. Smith of this group. So then, step two would be I reach out to Dr. Smith. Yeah, and say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a recent graduate. I'm looking for a job. Is this something? Are you are you guys hiring? You know, bring it. Bring your portfolio. This is what. This is how I teach. This is what I've been teaching. This is what I want to do. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a person that wants to be a contributor. I want to help build this. And so let's start, let's start there. Because Here, here's some, again, going back to your uh, point on, about Twitter, that you, get, you illuminate these things that are not so obvious and not written in any books. So one of those things that are not so obvious for every resident fellow is what are the questions, hard questions you ask when you're signing a contract? Right? So, when you, so let's say Dr. Smith says, hey, yeah, we have some openings. You know, we, we're looking to hire so you go and meet with Dr. Smith in program. What are some things you look for in the program that'll, let's, let's just say red flags, I would say, you know what, this is not the right one for me. Uh, the biggest one that I would look for is turnover, right? Like if they are constantly going through new fellows, graduate, start working for them, two or three years later, they leave, that's a warning so sign. Two or th- you say two or three laters, that they leave after two or three years. Yeah. 
Okay. Right. So what, what's happening there is the guy's bringing them in as associates and then not providing them a route to become a partner. And once and these guys... what does guys, that mean? Tell that for, for, I, for people like me. Oh, no and, and, and no so what right. does that so, mean to become a partner? Well, a partner means you, you're, you have equity. You own the business, right? And so and an, and an associate means you're getting paid a salary, right? And usually you're getting paid a salary that's going to be below what you're earning for the practice, that your labor rather than capital. And, you want and you're probably capital. doing it, and you're doing it a lot more than the partners, right? Well, you know, it's going to be, it's going to vary from group to group, you know, uh, Lots of group, everybody works the same, but not everybody takes home the same, right? And you want to be a person that's taking home a full, a full share, not a partial share. And, you know, standard model is you're going to have a, uh, you'll work as an associate for two or three years, and that's everybody feeling each other out, making sure that this is a place I want to work with you, you want to work with me, okay, that's good. What's my partnership track? And you want to get that, def- you want to know that on day one. You don't want to learn that two or three years in. Ah. And- Great. That's a great segue into my next question, which is, you have that position, and the and the, the new resident or new new graduate says, "Great, this I love this place, and you know, it looks like you've kept some people around, and it seems like a great culture." What's your path to partnership? If someone, if if the partner says, "Well, you know, let's let's get you in in first and get you settled and and working, and then we can talk about that later," is that a red flag? Well, I mean, I you know, I, I think every group wants to do it. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Hills and Valleys. If you haven't already, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on our podcast. That way you're notified of new episodes as they're released. And if you're not already, please go ahead and follow Potrero Medical on all our social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And we'll see you next time.